And Lord, your word speaks in First Chronicles of the sons of Issachar, who knew how to discern the times to know what Israel should do. We need men like that. We need to be people like that. Sharpen our thinking today by your word that we may glorify you in how and what we think and say about the pressing issues of the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So why this sermon this day? Uh, The great white north to us, our, our neighbor, the Canadians, passed a law recently that became law on January 8th called Bill C-4 that deals with conversion therapy. The intent of the bill is to prevent therapy that coerces or abuses people uh, into trying to make, uh, I'm just going to use the word gay, I'll try to remember to do scare quotes, it's homosexuals, to make homosexuals have straight desires or to make trans people want to just be their sex. Uh, Conversion therapy, as coercive and abusive, they want to prevent that. But the law is written so broadly, and the the preface of it, which I'll read in a moment, is so sweeping that it is capable of a whole lot more damage. Let me read that to you and then talk a little bit more about it. Here's the preamble to that bill. Whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because... Among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, meaning identify yourself by what you were born as biologically, cisgender gender identity, let me start that over again now that I've explained that, including the myth, notice that, the myth, This is a pronouncement of the government. The myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. In other words, the government is declaring that it is a myth, a superstition, an error, and harmful to think that a man should be a man and act like a man and a woman should be a woman and act like a woman. And treating a gender as something assigned at birth, you know, as if a child is born and the doctor looks at that body and says, I don't know, I'm feeling boy, you know, just randomly assigning instead of looking at what he has been taught in medical school is the mark of a male or a female and saying, yep, that's a girl. <laughs> or yep, that's a boy. But no, it's assigned now. And further, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all Canadians. So identifying freedom from your biological identity is essential to freedom and equality. It's written, now, Canadians differ in how they interpret this, and that's the problem with it, one of the problems. It's it's, uh, sufficiently unclear and so broad that it could create a rationale for ending Christian free speech and Christian, um, uh, Christian preaching, as a matter of fact. Not being able to put on your board, Jesus Christ delivers from all sin, including homosexuality. That would possibly be against this law. Uh, a parent wanting to take a, a child who decides he wants to go with the fad and say he's a girl or that he's gay, wanting to take that child to talk to the pastor, that could be possibly against the law, according to this Um, or preaching or evangelizing or writing or a host of activities of religious liberty could be against the law. 
So you think, boy, I'm sure glad I'm not Canadian. Oh, not so fast. Reading from a report, 14 states, including California, New Jersey, and Washington, already have similar bans, though more limited in scope. And Indiana recently produced, introduced a bill of its own. At its last convention, the Democrats made advancing conversion therapy laws a key part of their party platform. So, because of that, a number of Canadian pastors are today preaching on what the Bible says about this issue. Whether they be breaking the law or not, they are not going to be told by the state what they may or may not preach. And a number of pastors in America are in solidarity also preaching on this subject. And so, as I don't believe I've ever preached a sermon dedicated to the subject, I'm doing the same today. Uh, it's as good a time as any, plus if it ever becomes uh, a, a question of law here, I want to make sure that the evidence about where I stand is crystal clear and unmistakable. So, have you noticed what the world has been doing about this issue? On the one hand, we're being bombarded everywhere we turn. Commercials, TV shows, ads, we're being bombarded with one or another aspect of the gay agenda. And yes, there is a gay agenda. Some aspect of, of homosexuality or transsexualism or asexuality or something like that, we're being bombarded with that. And when we respond to it, the world says what? Why are you Christians obsessed with sex? Why are you always talking about sex? To which the answer is, well, maybe if you stop bombarding with it, us with it, we could talk about something else, but we do need to respond. And that's what we're called to do. Here's the strategy, I think. There's a town in the Mojave Desert in California called Trona. It's on the shore of a dry lake. And as you drive into that valley and round the corner, you are bombarded with the stench of rotting eggs. It is unmistakable because the chemical factory that refines chemicals from the dry lake makes that smell. Now the locals at least used to say smells like money because that was their industry. I uh, don't know whether it still is or not, but here's the thing. You'd go in and you'd just be absolutely overwhelmed, but after a few hours or a day or so, what? Wouldn't notice it so much because you've been bombarded with it and your olfactory senses just stop firing. <laughs> they just kind of lay over dead and then you go to the town nearby and you come back and oh there it is again well this is what the world is doing to us they're bombarding us with this and everywhere we look everything we listen to it's really not mis uh, escapable parents are finding that they're having to explain things to their very young children that parents never had to explain before in past generations because this is the world's strategy but the thing is we need to understand it has never been about allowing people to do what they choose to do. Uh, that's an issue in itself, but it's never been about that. It's been about forcing you to accept what they do and to approve what they do and to ratify what they do. So if somebody were to say to me, well, is it okay if I uh, marry another man? A man says that. Um, my, one of my responses would be, well, am I free to say that you're not married and you never can be married? Am I free not to treat you as a married couple? Am I free not to speak of you as a married couple? And what would the answer be? No. Am I free not to bake a cake, say, for your wedding? Oh, you know the answer to that one, don't you? Because it's been done. Because Christian bakers have been set up so they could be sued uh, because they would not bake a cake to uh, celebrate a uh, homosexual uh, mirage, marriage. 
And, uh, and so that is the issue. The issue is, as my friend Doug Wilson says, is not simply a battle for marriage, it's a battle for the control of the dictionary. Uh, about forcing us to call a man a woman if he says he's a woman, to say her and hers of a man if he says he's a woman, and to treat homosexual relations as being equal to any other relation. It's about forcing us to do it. And, and that's, that's where uh, it's a very different issue, and we need to be able to think about it and respond to it as Christians. So in this sermon, it's my aim to equip you to think about it the way God thinks about it, along the lines of God's thought, to be able to explain why you think the way you do, showing you how to think and what to think and what to do. And you will see that Jesus Christ does not only save our souls, he saves our minds. Because what we have when we walk away from the word of God is not just incorrect opinions. We have madness. We have insanity. We don't just go wrong. We go nuts. Have you seen that? It's absolutely true. Why? Because, uh, you know what? How about if I preach that instead of... We're still in the introduction, so... (laughs) Buckle up, my friend. So, um, as I say, I want to get ahead of the curve in case anyone needs to convict me in the future. Let's be perfectly clear on this. Uh, Roman numeral one, this is the most important, how to think. Being a Christian is not a matter simply of learning the right conclusions on issues. It's learning why, and it's learning how to think about things. How do you think about issues like this? I hope to show you in three simple points how to think about issues like this. And the first point in how to think about this is you think in the light of creation. And you could have said where I'd go if I didn't put it down, you would have known. But let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I wrote an article that is, I think, the most shared and, and copied and printed up article of any that I wrote at Pyromaniacs titled the most offensive verse in the Bible. And this was that verse. that I said if I were on a talk show and, and uh, somebody wanted to go to the homosexual verses and go to the homosexual verses, sorry, I had not turned my microphone on, my fault. Go to the homosexual verses and press me on that. I, I would say, tell you what, let me go to the most offensive verse. And let's talk about that one because all the other ones come from this verse. This is the verse you really want to get angry at because all the other ones come from that. And that's Genesis 1.1, which says that God created everything. So what does everything mean? What he says. What's everything for? What he says. What's the definition of everything? What he says it is. What's the purpose of everything? What he says it is. Do you mean I can't just redefine myself any way I want and just follow my heart? Yeah, that that would be one thing I mean. You're not God. Oh, I hate that. I don't want to hear that. I started off with a sales line, you shall be as gods, and I'm still trying to work that one out. That's the world. That's why this is the most offensive verse. And so verse 27 says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What verb do you see three times there? Created. Created. So just as surely as God created the heavens and the earth, he created humanity. So humanity 
is what God says, means what God means, is for what God says, and when God created us, he created us male and female and nothing else. Male and female, two sexes. By the way, sex is a better word than gender. Sex has to do with your biology. And it's, it's silly to say biological male. That's like saying a geological mountain or something like that. I mean, there is no other, there's no other kind of male, you know? I mean, it's biological male is like saying a male male, you know? That's, that's what, what your biology says. Every cell in your body says that, no matter what your mouth says. Uh, now, I'm going to add a few more verses and then discuss them all. You don't need to turn here, but do note and listen. Psalm 104, 24 how numerous are your works, O Yahweh. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. So the world is God's works. They're his possessions. He crafted and made them all with wisdom. In other words, he didn't just throw them off. He had an absolute set reason for everything. And that's why the great Christian thinker Cornelius Van Til said, there's no such thing as a brute fact. That, are, that is, there is nothing in the universe that doesn't have meaning or that could be viewed atheistically or theistically. No, everything has made by God stamped on it. And everything has God's purpose wired into it. Any more than you go out the door and say, well, you know, I want to look at that cross, not as a cross fashioned in the woodshop of Don Wafer, but as some random object. You can say that all you want, my friend, but Don Wafer made that cross. And you can't change the fact that it is what he made it to be in his woodshop. And everything in the world was created by God with the meaning he invested with it. His works, his possessions, including us. Including us. Next verse. Psalm 139.14 I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. And one of those works, one of those possessions, is me. The way I am was made by God. If made by God, then designed by God, not me by myself. I do not create myself. I do not create my meaning. God creates my meaning. Finally, Isaiah 44, uh, 24. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and stretching out the earth all alone. So here's, here's what these verses teach us. Here's some of what these verses teach us. God, the infinite personal God of Scripture, not God however you conceive of Him, not the prime mover of philosophers, but this God, the God we read about here and nowhere else, God created everything by Himself alone, consulting only Himself, drawing on resources produced only by Himself, using powers emanating only from Himself, designed for purposes decreed by Himself. This is what everything is. So everything points back to God Everything is for God. And can you use a carrot to drive a nail? You can try, but that's not what it's for. It's good to know what it's for. It's great for eating. Not so great for, hammer, for nail driving. A hammer's great for driving nails. Not so great for eating. It's good to know what a thing's for. Everything is for God. He owns, designed, possesses everything. So, 
He created all things, and specifically, when he created our race, and as always, I mean the human race, in all of our beautiful colors today, the human race was created in two sexual categories. Just two. And so our wisest, highest, and best course always is to seek God's design and purpose. Because God is literally infinite in His wisdom and knowledge. He literally not only knows everything, which would be a great feat, but He knows what everything means, which is a separate feat. My computer has a lot of facts. It doesn't know one thing. It doesn't understand them. It just retains them. God knows all facts because He created all facts. He decreed the meaning of all facts. And so the wisest thing we could do is to say, well, what's this for, God? And then to pursue that. So the madness that we see today uh, results from deliberately rejecting this truth. Let me repeat what I said a moment ago. When you step away from the Word of God and the thinking that it teaches us to do, when you step away from the Lordship of God, you don't just step away into incorrect opinions. You step away towards madness. Do you, do you see that? And, and the further you step in that direction, the more into in madness you step. And I think that we see this in our society today. That The trouble is we don't notice the rotten egg smell anymore. We're, we're getting so used to it. But when you step back and you look at these poor sad men and women and the lives that they're gleefully leading, insisting that, oh no, they're very happy and fulfilling. We know they're really not. It's just crazy, and you don't know why they can't see that. Well, they can't see that for reasons we're going to see, but the bottom line is they've stepped away from their Creator. They think they know better than, than their Creator, and here's the thing. The percentage of times that we know better than our Creator it would be about 0.0000. We never, ever can. We never, ever will. And I just think that this, this is human viewpoint in a nutshell. That, that you insist, oh no, when I step away from all the superstitions, like Canada says, and the myths in this book, when I step away from that, I am free to really realize myself and find my highest potential and, and, and brilliant creative thought. To say that and then stand naked in front of a mirror and say, I'm not sure what that is. I don't even know what I'm looking at. What is all that for? <laughs> that should be about as basic as it gets. And the human viewpoint can't even manage a real answer to that. Except to say it's whatever you say it is. And I don't know, I don't know a better real life living of the emperor's new clothes than that, do you? The emperor's walking around buck naked and everybody because they respect him say, yeah, beautiful clothes. <sighs> yeah, beautiful clothes, dude, beautiful clothes. And, and that's what we're forced to do, to, to call men her. And, and when, a, when, a, when a man says, you know what, I really, I really feel like winning some medals, so I think I'll compete as a woman in swimming. You do that. Well, creation stands against that. We need to learn to think about things in the light of creation. Things mean what God made them to mean. There's no getting around that. There's no getting around that. You know the, the story told of the scientists saying to God, well, you know, you can create life. That's nothing. We can create life we can create life anytime. God says, okay, fine, you do it. The scientists say, well, fine, we will. And they go start scooping up some dirt. And God says, wait, wait, wait. Go get your own dirt. <laughs> well, that's just it. 
Secondly, on the path of wisdom. In light of creation, first, second, on the path of wisdom. And where will I go? I'll go, of course, to Proverbs 1.7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and understanding. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. So a lot of Christians don't get this. They, they'll say, they, yes, they, they, I believe that. And here's all the reasons why I reasoned my way to Christianity. Well, if you reasoned your way to Christianity, then you, you didn't start there, did you? you? You ended there. Where did you start? This verse says we need to start with the fear of the Lord. We need to start with the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of, wis- of knowledge. And then Proverbs 9.10 says it's the beginning of wisdom as well. This is literally the opposite of how every other religion and philosophy proceeds. And this is one of the first things we need to learn as a Christian. What does Jesus say is the way to become a, a disciple? Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And so denying myself, that's this. My desire as a fallen person is to begin with the fear of me, with respect for my heart, respect for my judgments, what seems right to me, what sounds right to me, what makes sense to me. Oh, you know, that is very popular, and it's the exact opposite of this. When we become a Christian, we, d- we deny that. We put death to that. We get, push ourselves off the throne and give the throne to Jesus where it belongs. We bow our knee to his lordship. Wisdom starts with reverence for God and not for man. And wisdom is impossible without that starting point. Proverbs 14.6. Proverbs 14.6. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. What's a scoffer? A person who belittles the truths of Scripture. A person who mocks revelation. A person who has contempt for the things of God. Because he's, he knows, he's, knows everything. He's got it all handled. He's got it all right here. He's got it all right here in his heart, which never steers him wrong. And so he seeks wisdom, but he doesn't find any. And the second stick is, but knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. Because he started the right place. So, as I say, to do otherwise does not make us merely incorrect, but it heads us off towards madness and chaos. Step away from the Creator is to step into chaos not merely incorrectness. So we need to think in light of creation. We need to think on the path of wisdom. And thirdly, we need to think in view of the fall. Ecclesiastes 7.29 See, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God made men upright. Adam was created in original holiness and righteousness but they have sought out many devices. And that's the rest of the history of the Bible (laughs) after the creation of Adam. And after his fall, you and I are not looking at a pristine creation. We're looking at a fallen creation. We're not looking at things the way that things ought to be. We're looking at the way things have been made by sin. Uh, And uh, the prevalence of death and sin and hatred and violence and disease, all these things, they're results of the fall and of the curse on Adam's sin. So uh, Genesis 6-5, just uh, three, three chapters after the fall, Genesis 6-5, how's man doing then? How's this bold new experiment of being as God's going? Genesis 6-5, then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that, listen, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, Hebrew's a little more picturesque. Rak, rak, kol hayom. 
only evil all the day. <laughs> very, very vivid. And this is what God sees. And so he, by flood, wipes them out, saves a, a, godly, uh, a godly but imperfect family. Sin is not obliterated. Sin comes right back after the flood. So this is the world we're looking at. Man has made many devices. We can't successfully reason today. We can't confidently reason from is to should. I talk about that at greater length in the World Hilting Gospel, as you hopefully have already read. If not, uh, please do. But uh, uh, you can't reason from is to should. And how does that apply here? Well, what's the gospel of the day? Follow your heart, right? And what's the assumption of that? Well, if you really desire it, it's a good desire. It's, 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 a, good, it's a good goal. It's a good thing. Your heart's not going to lead you strong. Really? Wrong. So, so what is my heart? Well, my heart's fallen. What is my heart? Well, my heart's broken. You mean my heart isn't functioning as it should? No, it's not functioning as it should. Suppose somebody landed from another planet and wanted to figure out what, what cars are for. So he goes to a junkyard and he, he surveys all the cars. And he says, well, I guess what cars are for is they're, they're to sit there and be homes for rats. What's the trouble with that? He's, he's looked at all the cars. Is that not what he's seeing? What's the problem with that? What's he looking at? Broken cars. He's looking at broken cars. You can't, you can't see from broken cars what a car is supposed to do. You have to look at a functioning car. We have to look at a functioning human being. Where do we find one of those? Hasn't been one since... Well, there's been one since Adam been one. Who's that? Jesus Christ. That's absolutely right. Otherwise, we've got to look at the Word of God to see what God says is the proper functioning of a human being. So, I can't unquestionably embrace my desires as being good, pure, right, and healthy. And this is one of the big arguments of the homosexual agenda. Uh, A few decades ago, the Christian response was homosexuality is a choice. To which homosexuals, including the ones I knew, said, I don't ever remember making that choice. I've never been attracted to men. I've never been attracted to women in my life. Women, I've never been attracted to to men. I don't remember ever having that attraction. And I don't ever remember making that choice. And so Christians felt like they had to argue against that. Well, why, why exactly would we argue against that if we understand biblical anthropology and, and doctrine of sin? Because... Are we born with bad desires that we don't really need to choose because they're there when we're born? They're there. When do they start? They start with our conception because we're born in, in Adam. We're conceived in Adam. And we receive his fallen nature. And so, yeah, you tell me that you've had these desires all your life. I have sympathy as a fellow sinner. But that doesn't make them right because you're broken. And I'm broken. You're fallen. I'm fallen. You're, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. What do sinners want? Sinner things. Sinners want sinner things. So you tell me I've wanted this since, since I was a child. You really do have my sympathy if you want to talk about, about becoming free from that. I, I, I know how awful that is. But it doesn't make it right. And that's the thinking today. If, if I wanted, it's got to be right. Especially if I wanted it since I was a child. Clearly it's right. Except I was a sinful child. I was a broken child. I wanted lots of wrong things as a child. And homosexuality certainly is another one of those. We wouldn't say that about anything else. 
guy says, I just want to get drunk all the time. Well, you know, if that's what you really want to do. So far, society is not there yet. If somebody says, well, I really want to do violence to women and enforce my will on them in a sexual way. People wouldn't say today yet, well, you know, if that's what you really want in your heart. <laughs> People would say that's an evil desire. Well, thank God, at least they see some still. But so is homosexuality. And how do we know that? Well, the same way we know the desires of a murderer, a rapist, or a thief are wrong. Same way, by the word of God. The fact that we want it just means we're sinners. Saying you know, something is sinful and you say, but I want it. That doesn't make the thing not sinful. What does it make? Me sinful. <laughs> if I want a sinful thing, then I'm a sinful person. That, that, that reasoning should be fairly basic, but it seems to escape a lot of people. So, how did science switch its mind? Forty years ago, homosexuality was a disorder. What's changed since then? Politics, not science. But how are they going to know? How, how, does, how would a psychologist know what is normal and healthy when he doesn't have an absolute standard to weigh human behavior by? Right? All they can do is go to the junkyard and look at the cars and say, well, this one looks, you know, as well-functioning as the rest, so I guess this is a healthy car. It's not the way you do it, see? And this is just that, isn't it? This is just that. So look in the light of creation, look in the light of wisdom, and look in view of the fall. So that's how to think. That's all important. Secondly, then, let's see what to think about this specifically. And we'll go to history, to law, to gospel. Obviously, a lot more could be said, but uh, this is one sermon. What to think. Roman numeral two. What to think. In terms of history, we've got Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So you can turn there. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God has created... <coughs> Pardon me. God has created the universe in six days, and on the sixth day, He crowns His creation by the creation of man. And... God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over everything, basically. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the everything, basically. Now, this, this teaches us a great, great deal. First of all, it teaches us that God created our race in two sexes, male and female. We'll read more detail on that in a moment, but note that, in two sexes. It teaches us that both sexes equally are in the image of God, but they're not equal. By equal, let me say that a different way. Both sexes are equally in the image of God, but they're not interchangeable, is what I mean to say. It is possible to be equal to someone, but not be the same as someone. So being female is not the same as being male, or vice versa, though both are in the image of God. With me so far? God had a purpose for creating two sexes. And what was one of those purposes? It's stated exactly in the Scripture when he blesses them and says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the intent stated earlier was he created them so that they would rule the earth in his name. 
And the way they would do that, this verse clarifies, is, is by what? Reproducing and filling the earth so that human beings would fill the earth and, um, and rule it. So now, how is that going to happen? How is there going to be more than those two people to fill the earth? No, we're not going to get into a lecture in biology here. Trust me, relax, parents. But um, it's going to happen by there being a male and a female created to correspond to each other biologically so that when they unite in marriage, they normally will produce offspring. And those offspring... So God's intention... So you ask the question then, why are there men and women? And you can answer it as a Christian. God created male and female so that they could marry and reproduce and fill the earth. There you go. That's why there's two sexes. And they're not interchangeable. They're not the same. They're both in God's image, but they are designed and intended to be able to fill the earth, reproducing. That was the reason. That was God's intention in creating it that way. Now, more detail in chapter 2. Look there. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, Yahweh God said, He created Adam out of the dust of the earth, And he said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this is really worth some unpacking. First of all, he he says that it's good. It's not good for the man to be alone. Well, why is it not good? Well, for one thing, we can say in chapter one, why is it not good? He can't fill the earth (laughs) by himself. He can't can't reproduce and fill the earth by himself. So that's one good thing, uh, not good thing. And it's also not good for him to be alone. He, He needs help. He needs, he needs someone working with him for the glory of God. And so what does God do? He makes him a helper fit for him. Now that Hebrew phrase needs to be unpacked. A helper fit for him. The, the, the Hebrew very literally is as in front of him. As facing him. So corresponding to him. So let me open that a little bit more. He's not saying, I will make him a helper the same as him. He's not saying, I will make another of him. I'll make two of him. This is not another ish. This is an isha. This is not a man, it's a woman. And it, he, she corresponds to him. So, in other words, if you think of it this way, Adam's a plug. God is not going to help him by creating another plug. Adam's a plug, and, and God's going to help him by creating an outlet. Uh, Adam is a left shoe. God's not going to help him by creating another left shoe. He's going to help him by creating a right shoe. Do you see? So she will not be him. She won't be another of him. She will correspond to him. She will complete him. One bookend, the other bookend to hold the books together. Not facing the same way, but facing each other. Are you with me? So this is the purpose of God making another. And uh, let's read on. 22 through 24, God uh, put Adam into a deep sleep, took a rib out, built a woman, so his, his wife was really built, and um, brought, him to the man, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He looked at all the animals. They didn't correspond to him. They didn't complete him, but she does. So she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Therefore, a man shall believe, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Wow, there you go. This defines marriage. Marriage is a creation of God, not a creation of man. Marriage is what God says it is, not what we say it is. You know, I say, you know what I think, I say to Osai, I say, you know, I think your oldest son should be named Bobby. 
And Osai, my dear brother, says to me, you know, that's nice to know. But he's not your son. <laughs> you don't get to name him. You want to try to have a son name him, Bobby, you go right ahead. But he's not your son. So what about marriage? So I want marriage to be, you know, a man and his dog. I want to be marriage to be a woman in the refrigerator. Or two men. Or two women. Not your institution. Not your institution. So, like I've said before, if the Supreme Court were to rule that dog tails are actually legs, then how many legs would dogs have? Four legs. They can rule whatever they want, but a tail is still a tail, and a leg is still a leg, and marriage is still what it is. And it's not what we say it is, unless we say it is what God says it is, which would be my advice. So one man, one woman, and as verse 24 very uh, tersely says, bound together in covenant. The rest of Scripture makes that clear. It's the covenant that binds them together, and it's sexual union that seals that unity as the corresponding parts meet and join. Not two identical parts bouncing off each other, but made for each other parts meeting and joining in the covenant of marriage. This is the designed place for sexual intimacy, and it is the meaning of marriage. One man, one woman, bound together. And so, since it's not a human institution, we get, don't get to redefine it. And that's why Doug Wilson says it's a battle for control of the, dic- of the dictionary. No, we're, we're to be forced to say that things that aren't marriage are marriage. So, more about history. I'll just summarize. You know Genesis 19. That's about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were outrageously sinners, exceedingly wicked before the Lord. Chapter 13, I think it is, says. And God destroyed them, as you know. And what do you see in Sodom? You see, Lot takes in angels into his house. Angels who obviously appear like men. And the men of the city surround and They say they want to have intimacy with the angels. They want to have sex with the angels, with the, with the men of the angels. And what does God do to Sodom and Gomorrah? It destroys the heck out of them. I mean, he just rains fire down on them, obliterates them, so much so that they become a, uh, an ensign of God's judgment. And later scripture reflects on that. What was their sin? Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, I'll read to you. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them saw it. They did an abomination. That wasn't their only sin, but that was a crowning sin. That was a crowning sin because also Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. (laughs) Yikes. History marks something particularly heinous about this sin, and this might be a good place to say to you, that while it is true that all sins alike are sin, all sins are not alike. Sins differ in heinous, all heinousness. All sins are equally sinful, but not all sins are equally heinous. Do you remember that Jesus says to Pilate, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin? Quite a few scriptures point to the fact that some sins are more outrageous in God's eyes depending on how many sins are involved in the sin and how many people are affected by the sin. Now some people have said things like, well, Sodom, the, the trouble is that they're going to force sex on the angel. It's not the homosexuality. 
We will talk a little bit later if consent makes, makes it a different thing and not sinful. We'll talk about that. But just notice that Scripture treats it as a particularly heinous, abominable sin. So that's history. Now letter B, Mosaic Law. Uh, we've, we're familiar with the verses. I'll just read one from Leviticus 18.22. Fairly straightforward. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. All sorts of gymnastics undergone to try to make that not say what it says. But uh, the deep meaning of the Hebrew text is exactly what it looks like. It just means what it says. That the act of attempting to uh, a mockery of sex between a man and a man is an abomination. Abomination. Not just wrong, not just incorrect, not just probably suboptimal, not just not best for human flourishing, but an abomination. It's repellent to God. I did not make you for that. That's repellent to me. That is not what I gave you that for. So it's an abomination. Now Deuteronomy 22.5, I'd like you to look at that because this is one that perhaps is not as well known. Fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy 22.5. Leviticus 18.22 dealt with sexual relations. This verse deals more with sexual identity. Deuteronomy 22.5 A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So, what does this deal with? Well, again, it, it really is pretty much what it looks like. The idea is that it is an abomination to God for a man to try to look like a woman or for a woman to try to look like a man. Now, this differs from culture to culture. There's not a a description of the particular kinds of clothes because it differs. Each culture has a way to designate this is the way a man dresses, this is the way a woman dresses. So it's kind of wrong-headed to say, okay, well, that's about jeans or, or, or whatnot. The point is, you look at that person, do you clearly say this is a man who is trying to do nothing other than look like a man? This is a woman who's trying nothing else than to look like a woman. Or do you see this is a sad, angry-looking little woman trying to dress up like a man? Or this is a sad, broken man trying to dress up and look like a woman? Um, this, is, this prohibits, it forbids, sexuality. Now, I want to point this out, and we'll return to this. It only has meaning if sexuality is fixed. So this can have no meaning if a person can say, Oh, but it's okay. I now identify as a woman. I can dress as a woman, but it's all right. It's all right. I identify as a woman. My birth certificate says I'm a man, but I say I'm a woman, and my will is supreme. I was promised that in the Garden of Eden. I'm like God. So here I am. Now I'm a woman. I created myself a woman. I can dress like a woman. Well, so that law would be impossible if that were possible. Do you follow me? Because there'd be no such thing as a man or a woman. It's the funniest thing. I mean, the liberals today, they, they, they're all for this, you know, gender fluidity. But then when they say, well, we want more opportunities for women, and immediately people like me say, sounds great. What's a woman? What's a woman? You know? You want a job? Say, oh, I'm a woman today. Do I have that job? Great. Thank you. Now I'm a man again. But that's not obviously how it works. And this law could not have that any meaning if gender were fluid, if sex were fluid. It's not. It's fixed. It's fixed at creation by creation. 
So is everything all totally different now in the gospel area? Jesus is going around throwing flowers and puppies and butterflies and saying, just do what you want, kids. I accept you unconditionally. Not so much. Uh, Let's ask the question, first of all, in the gospel area, is sexual perversion sin? And Oh, spoiler. (laughs) Come on now, work with me. Uh, So let's go to Matthew 19. And as you're going there, you think, wait a minute, that's not about sexual perversion. Stay with me. Matthew 19, verses uh, 3 through 9. And some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So they're asking a sexually related question. Marriage is the institution within which sex is designated by God. So can a man leave that for any reason at all? Some rabbis said yes. Where's Jesus' stance? And he answered and said, have you not read? I just love when he says that. I mean, that is such a slap in the face to them. Have you ever read, like, I don't know, the Bible? Have you ever read, like, you know, um, Genesis? And he goes right to Genesis 1, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Yeah, we just read that. Hey, that'd be a cool sermon title. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. So it goes from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What's he doing there? Well, he's looking at the question in the light of creation. And he's looking at the question in the light of the fear of God. Wait a minute, where do we hear that? You say, oh, pastor, you said that. Yeah, but it wasn't original with me. I got it from Jesus. He goes back to creation. You want me to ask, you want to talk to me about human sexual relations? Got to go back to Genesis. Got to go back to creation. And you got to, got to do it in the fear of God. What does the Word of God say? What God's joined together, don't separate. He doesn't say they can't separate, but they, he says they shouldn't. They said to him, then why did Moses say, give her a certificate of divorce? And he said, because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. What's he doing there? Looking at it in light of the fall. Just just as we saw in Roman numeral 1. And I say, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Well, but what is sexual immorality? What you feel is wrong? Like like President Obama said, sin is whatever violates my standards. (laughs) That's not sexual immorality. It's whatever violates God's sexual standards. But for there to be sexual standards, we have to agree with him that sex is fixed and that there's laws governing sex, his laws. Otherwise, all this is meaningless, but obviously it's not meaningless. So uh, to answer such questions, we go back to creation also, and we go back to the laws of God. And people often say, well, you know, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality or transvestitism. Well, that's a two-edged sword, you know. If you want to say because he didn't specifically name something, then it's okay. Well, he didn't say anything about insider training either or, or, or extortion or rape or pederasty or a genocide or a host of other things. He didn't name them specifically. But yes, he certainly did talk about homosexuality and transvestitism. He did it right here. He affirmed Genesis 1 and 2. He affirmed God's definition of marriage. You see that? Is that not talking about homosexuality? Yes, it is. And when he says immorality, he uses the Greek word porneia. That just covers all violations of God's sexual laws. So yeah, Jesus absolutely did speak about it. 
Romans 1, 26 and 27, we read a moment ago. Take a look there. How are we doing? Well, we're doing. For this reason, God gave them over. For the reason that starts in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all uh, unrighteousness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Yes, you can feel something that is wrong. You can want something wrong. Dishonorable passions. Specifically what? For their females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Well, there you go. What does this teach us? There is a natural function of sex. Natural, though, but that means what's natural to me. Doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It means what is designed by God. Again, God did not make two plugs. He made a plug and an outlet. God made men and women. A man, a woman. That was God's will. It still is God's will. For any other pairing is unnatural. Doesn't matter what people feel. There are dishonorable passions. Are you with me? We're not determined by our hearts. It's determined by God's law and God's design. Back to the start of the sermon. So, uh, in the same way the males abandon the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They, they, in the, a host of diseases and the destruction of their, of their male personality and their life and their judgment and their conscience and ultimately the wrath of God if they don't repent. Just listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. You know this, I'm sure. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, people who sleep around, straight people, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. So that matters to God. Trying to act like a woman when you're a man matters to God. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and just one more, then a little discussion. First Timothy 1, 9, and 10, I'll read to you. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. Who are the lawless and rebellious? I'll tell you. For liars, for perjurers, I'm sorry, the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals. So notice, there is nothing more noble about being a man who sleeps around with women than being a man who sleeps around with men, or a woman who sleeps around with men over a woman who sleeps around with women. Homosexual sin may be more heinous, but they're both equally sin. For kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So the ability to say any of this requires that there is a norm. You have to know what a man is, what a woman is. It has to be fixed. You have to know the laws governing their sexual relations. And the Word of God gives all of that. And this is all... judge. And, and, and I want you to notice, I think I may have mentioned this before, that without this, a whole host of commands become meaningless. So suppose we were to say, oh yes, now I am now a progressive Christian. Uh, the world will respect and, and embrace me now. I believe that gender is fluid. 
That's what they say. Gender is fluid. I'm an, I'm an affirming Christian. I affirm anybody's sexualities. So, okay, then tell me, what does this verse mean? Wives, subordinate yourselves to your husbands. Well, for those people wouldn't believe that verse anyway. <laughs> but suppose they did, uh, an anomaly. Wives, subordinate yourselves to your husbands. But wait a minute. What's a wife? And what's a husband? Suppose a, a woman is wanting to rebel against the godly leadership of her husband and the pastor comes to confront her. The uh, affirming pastor comes to confront her. And he says, Sister, you know Scripture says, wives, submit to your husbands. And she says, Today, I identify as a male. I'm no longer the wife. What's he going to do now? What's he going to do now? Uh, what about, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And so a woman wants to be a pastor and says, I identify as a man. Now I can be a pastor. Now you twice can't be a pastor, but regardless, there's two reasons why you couldn't be a pastor. But regardless, do you see? You, you, you make gender fluid, and a whole bunch of Scripture becomes absolutely meaningless. You, you can't, you can't, it doesn't mean anything. So obviously God does not think that way. So obviously His children and servants should not think that way. You see? Important to know how to think and what to think. So here's an aside, number two. I'm going to answer this question, a couple of questions that are real popular. Make sure you know how to think about them. So is it not really a sin if it is what I feel in my deepest heart? I, I heard a chuckle or two, but you know that's what people say. And even professedly Christians say that. That if we really feel it, it can't be wrong. When it feels so right. So is that true? Well, I believe you, I hope you all could answer that real quickly and easily. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? No, what my heart desires is not necessarily right. It has to be judged by a standard outside of itself and not by itself. What does Jesus say about the heart? Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 7, 21 through 23. Listen to what Jesus says about the heart. Does Jesus affirm, just do what's in your heart? Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So, if I desire it in my deepest heart, can it still be wrong? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to judge it by God's Word. Second question. Is it still sin if both parties consent? If both parties consent. Now this is a popular thing. I don't know why you're so upset about homosexuality. It's, it's, it's a victimless crime. They both want this relationship. What does that have to do? They're not hurting anybody. Well, that statement is wrong on a whole lot of levels. But let's, just, let's keep it simple. If, it, if there's consent, does that make it not sin? Well, 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Unless someone else says it's okay. If God says, do not do this, and somebody else says, oh, you can do this, well, is it not a sin? anymore. Now, there are some things that would be wrong in one context, but right for another. You know, fornication is wrong, but sex within marriage is right. 
You say, well, it's the same act. Yeah, but in two different contexts. But still, fornication is wrong. And homosexuality is wrong. And here's the thing that is not quite affirmed enough today. Homosexuality is inherently wrong. There is no context in which it will ever be right in any form, or transvestitism. There's no context in which it will ever be right. So consent has nothing to do with it. If, if I am a drug dealer and I have cocaine and somebody wants to buy it from me, or heroin, somebody wants to buy it from me, is it moral for me to sell it because that's what he wants? The act is still wrong. It doesn't matter whether he wants it. So two people who want to pursue homosexuality, they're, they're, they're perpetrators, they're, they're accomplices, but it doesn't make a sin not a sin. But there's the thing. Uh, the agenda is to force everybody to accept and enable these acts. Finally, what, so the question was, is sexual perversion sin? And now the question, what saves from sin? What saves from sin? Well, first of all, of course, it isn't a what, it's a who, but I'll tell you what doesn't save from sin. What doesn't save from sin? Saying it's not sin. Insisting that nobody has the right to call it sin. Insisting that I have the right to do this because it's what fulfills me and it's who I am. That, that doesn't save. What saves from sin? Like I said, not a, not a what, but a who. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that who? Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners. Well, surely not bad sinners. Well, I'd like to know another kind. I'd like to know another kind. They're all bad sinners. But you just said that there's different degrees. Yeah, and any sin will send you to hell. And Jesus came to save from sin. You say, oh, well, surely not this. I don't know, is it a sin? Yes. Then yes. Oh, but not this. <laughs> Couldn't be that. Well, is it a sin? Yes. Then that. He came to save sinners. 1 Corinthians 6.11, after the verses we read before, I hope you know this too. He's listed off homosexuals and the effeminate and so forth. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Specifically effeminate and homosexuals. And some of them were. Wait a minute, but I've been told with absolute certainty it's impossible to leave homosexuality. Well, I've been told with absolute certainty that it is possible to leave homosexuality because such were some of them. Now, let's see. Do I, do I accept the sinner's self-testimony about his feelings or do I accept God's word about his power? Hmm. What do you think? I accept God's word. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. A new creation. Well, that's a miracle. That's right. That's why the, the psychologists know nothing about this. They know nothing about taking junk cars and transforming them into new cars. But God does. God does. And uh, it doesn't say accept homosexuals or transvestites or transsexuals. It doesn't say that. And by the way... Being created categories, male and female, cannot be crossed. There is no such thing. There's never yet been such a thing as a pregnant father. I mean, yes, a pregnant, a pregnant man. 
although you've read the headlines, never yet been one ever, and there never will be. Some poor, sad, disfigured woman is pregnant who thinks she's a man, but she's still a woman, or she wouldn't be pregnant. You can't cross created, those created categories. So, finally, what to do. What to do, Roman numeral three. Well, first of all, do not join in false witness. This covers a whole lot. It's challenging, but it's God's call to all of us. Exodus 23, 1 and 2, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So just because many people want to say something, I can't add my name to that. And even if everybody says, you know, you've got to say that this is a married couple, I can't do it. That's false witness. These two men will never be a married couple. No power on earth can make them a married couple. I won't agree with you. I can't say it. I can't treat them that way. I can't call them that way. That would be lying. That would be joining you in lying. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, one of the things God hates is a false witness who breathes out lies. And if I speak of a man as a woman, or a woman as a man, or two of the same sex as a married couple, I'm bearing false witness. God hates that. I can't do that. No power can make me do that. Amen? Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to Yahweh. So even if it's my dear child or my brother or my dearest friend who decides to go this way, can I just say, well, if that's what makes you happy, you know, I wish you well, not if I fear God. I can't, I can't treat something wicked as being righteous, and I can't pronounce something wicked as being righteous without myself being an abomination to God. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good, and, sorry, let me start over. Who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And if I say this is acceptable and this is good and this is healthy and normal and fine, I'm doing that. I'm calling light darkness. I'm calling darkness light. And Ephesians 5 is even more specific. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, and homosexuality is one category of that, (coughs) or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Great, I'm with you. So, verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. Right, translated, don't become accomplices with them. Listen, verse 11, and do not participate with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. More literally, instead even reprove them. So what am I doing if I go to a quote-unquote gay, quote-unquote wedding? What am I doing if I'm a guest there adding my vote to this celebration of something that's a crime against God, an offense to Him, an abomination? a a perversion of his creation. What am I doing there? There's a Christian there. Fine with it. What are you doing? I'm an accomplice. I'm not reproving. I'm not reproving. I'm enabling. That's why they can't bake the cake. You can't bake the cake to celebrate something that is inherently offensive to God. 
So, it is not wise or godly to say that two men or two women are married or to attend a celebration. It's not wise or godly to say that a woman is a man or a man is a woman. And there's another thing that is going around saying gay Christian. Well, here I know a pastor who says he's a gay Christian. He has never known anything but homosexual desires. Now, he never has acted on them, and he plans never to act on them, but he's decided he can never marry or have a family because he's a gay Christian. There is no such thing as a gay Christian. There is no such thing as a gay Christian any more than there is any such thing as a covetousness Christian or a hatred Christian or a racist Christian or a murderer Christian if by those you say that's my identity. I identify myself with that. And what is gay? It's a sin. It will never be anything other than sin. And Christians don't identify themselves by sin. Now, if some well-meaning person were to say, but what he's trying to say is this is my struggle and, and, and this is what I battle and so forth, then I would say, well, you know, okay, so you're looking for a term that describes somebody who's repentant of his sin, he's been born again, He's got a new heart and a new nature. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he daily struggles with temptations and sins. And sometimes he falls, but then he repents and he's forgiven. And sometimes he stumbles, but in God's grace he stands up. You're looking for a term to describe someone like that? Yes, that's just it. I've got a term. Christian. That's what it is to be a Christian. You don't need to hyphenate it. You don't need to modify it. Just be a Christian. That's what it is to be a Christian. We're all tempted. We all stumble. We all have weaknesses. And I think the intent of some people, a lot of people I don't think it is a good intent. They're, they're, they've got evil intent. But some good-hearted people just don't want to make them feel singled out. But I think in doing that, you remove all hope. Because you're saying that's what you are. And that's what you always will be. And this man is preaching to his congregation that God can't save him from that sin. Well then, how is he going to tell anyone in his church to repent of their rape, racism? Or of their hatred or bitterness? Or, or of their malice? Are you following me? Well, these things are in their hearts. They, they, they've always felt these things. But he's saying they should repent of them? Yes, they should. But he, he can't mortify his desires. And, and he can't believe. I, I actually literally, personally, this is not a secondhand story. I knew a man who was homosexual. He lived as a homosexual. He repented, became a Christian. And he never did become attracted to women. Never did. But he did fall in love with one woman. How many women do you have to fall in love with to become married? Just one. Just one. You don't need to become a person who loves women. Just love one. One woman, one man. But this man has closed that door. And he's preaching that hopelessness to his church. And that's sad. And that's not necessary. And it's not what I read in Scripture. So there's nothing loving about lying. There's nothing loving about enabling lies. There's nothing loving about encouraging people to stay in a bad place. You don't just have the choices of being loving or being abusive. Don't be abusive. Don't be hateful. Don't be scornful. You have no right to. I have no right to. Talk to somebody who, who's struggling with a sin because how could he struggle with a sin? <laughs> The mirror pops right up and I see someone else who struggles with sin all the time. So, no, we've got to be humble, but we've got to be truthful. Finally, letter B, do think and tell the truth, all of it. Do think and tell the truth, 
All of it. And what is all the truth? Well, very, very briefly, you say too late for that. Well, I'll try to make this part brief. Violating God's laws always brings God's wrath. All sins are alike sin, but all sins are not alike. And we are all sinners, all of us, but Christ saves people from sin and he saves us all the way. That's all the truth. Sin brings God's wrath. Christ delivers from God's wrath. Sin enslaves and ruins. Christ saves from sin. Turn with me to Colossians 2. We'll finish with the word of God filling our minds. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Just pause there right for a second. You're saying somebody can, God can raise someone from the dead, but he can't save him from homosexuality. I, I think it's, a resurrection is more challenging. But you being dead in your transgressions and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death, debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's all sin. All sin of any nature, any category, past, present, future. All sin of all God's people were laid on the person of Christ, and he made full satisfaction for them, and they were all blotted away. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen? Now turn to chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. So to these Christians, he says, do not lie to one another, since you put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now there comes back the doctrine of creation now as a new creation. We are created by God, we are ruined by sin, and God creates us anew in Christ. A renewal in which there's no distinction. He lists off several and says, but Christ is all and, all and in all. So is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you, above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. All of this applies to all who are in Christ including the homosexual sinner, the, the heterosexual sinner, accum, accu, uh, including the transsexual sinner and the cisgender sinner, including all of us, because it's just sinners, but we're all given new life and all the graces of the Holy Spirit. And that includes anybody who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what should our attitude in closing be towards LGBTQ people? Towards their sin, our attitude should be hatred, as it should be very much towards all our own sins of bitterness and unforgiveness and of selfishness and of greed and of materialism. And well, we could spend quite a time here, couldn't we? We should never forget our sins when we look at others and their sins. We hate all sin, but towards them, what should our attitude be? Love, <laughs> just love. Just love. And you say, well, but what they do disgusts me. Well, but what we do disgusts God when we act in sin. What we did disgusted God, yet he loved us and saved us. They're just being sinners. That's what sinners do. They sin. What would you expect them to do? You want them to be more polite sinners? I'm afraid some Christians do. Be a better sinner than that. 
That's not the gospel. (laughs) That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus will save you from your sin as he saved me. So, love. And it's not loving to stop thinking in a godly manner for any reason. It's not loving to lie to someone or with someone. It's not loving to enable someone or comfort them in self-destructive, God-enraging behavior. It's not loving to rob him of hope by saying that change is impossible and transformation and deliverance are impossible. That's not loving. It is loving always to point to Jesus. That's the most loving thing. It is loving to call attention to sin as sin and call to repent from sin. It's loving to promise hope, transformation, and new life in Christ for anyone and all sinners who come to Him. And that includes me, and it includes you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the clarity of Your Word and how utterly time... uh, timeless it is, and how it applies to our needs today. Pray, Father, I don't know who's hearing this, uh, whether on the internet or elsewhere, somebody having struggles, oh Father, just point that person to the mercy and the deliverance and the new life that are in Christ. People aching over loved ones, help them to think your thoughts about them and present Christ to them with great confidence in your saving power. And we just thank you and pray that we will be ourselves transformed into the likeness of Christ through hearing his word today. In Jesus' name, amen.